podcast focused on lessons learned via the musician's backstory, as well as building successful careers in the business. My name is Allison M., and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. Let's get down to business. On today's episode, I'm so grateful to have here with me Marcia Daniel. She is a singer-songwriter, educator, and just fantastic overall person. Thank you for being here, Marcia. Thank you for having me, Allie. I'm so <laughs> excited and always nervous. Always nervous. For really. these little, you know, for any kind of life, like public talking talk really? thing. Yeah, as much as I talk, you wouldn't think that I would, <laughs> you know, get nervous. But I, I think I get healthy nerves. Yeah, well, I guess it's good to get a little bit nervous now and then, but uh, yes, healthy nerves are good. Yeah, so I, I mean, I know a lot about you personally, but I want I want everyone else to know more about you because you are just an amazing influence and friend and person for me, but I, more people need to know about you and why that is. And so, um, I, you know, can you tell us why, uh, or what you do, like, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into music. That's a very loaded question. I know that there's a lot there. It sure is. Um, I don't think that my parents would have necessarily programmed me to pursue a career in the arts only. However, on both sides of my family, um, I come from a lot of musicians. And even, like, my dad plays uh, piano, plays jazz piano. My mom sings. Um, my paternal grandfather and great-grandfather were singers. So there are a lot of singers and a lot of musicians, really, on both sides of my family. Um, so I guess it was pretty natural that I would have an interest in music as a kid. So by the time I was six and a half or seven, my parents enrolled me in piano lessons, which was a pretty um, easy fit. I think I was pretty good with practicing and I picked up on like learning how to read music quickly and it was just something that I really liked. I liked the fact that it was something that at the time at least as a kid I thought that everyone else couldn't necessarily do. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got off on the fact that oh you know I'm able to do this and this is um, fun. And from there I continued to take piano lessons. Um, my first singing experience was, well, I was in grammar school choir, um, mm -hmm. which was really not a very encouraging vocal <laughs> experience mm -hmm. for me. And where was this again? This was in Park Forest, Illinois, which is a south suburb of Chicago. It's about 35 miles south of Chicago. Um, and yeah, I, I was like in grammar school choir. I never got solos. Mm -hmm. Um I sang alto, and but I kept singing. And I honestly, I really don't, now that I think back on it, I don't know if I was a good or bad. I just know that I was never chosen for a solo at that time. Um, mm -hmm. Junior high school, so that puts me at like 13 years old, I decided that I wanted to audition for the school musical, which was Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> And I guess I'm laughing because, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't expect a, an African-American kid necessarily to, to be that interested in singing Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Nevertheless, I was. I grew up in a really nice community that was well integrated. Um, you know, so that's just yeah. how that's how we did things. Uh, that's how we rolled, as they say. Yeah. And my mom and my aunt um, were my voice coaches. Okay for preparing for the audition. I got the lead role, which was Golda, one of the leads, the wife of Tevya. Sure. Yeah. And um, I just kind of naturally had a, a voice that had more of a classical sort of quality. I wasn't trained in that particular style. I had never taken voice lessons up, you know, until that point. Um, 
and I really don't remember like actively listening to classical singers. Nevertheless, um, I got that role, and then I was just kind of hooked. I think on the fun of you know performing, and um, you know it gives you different access to a different level of camaraderie mm-hmm. with your peers. You know, you have your friends in school. Um, in your classes and stuff, but there's something I think a little extra special when you have an opportunity to work with your peers outside of the regular parameters mm-hmm. of school at that time. And I continued singing at 15. I um, started training my voice formally. Uh, also at 15, my choir director began hiring me to sing at weddings at his church, you know, which was, of course, a a neighborhood church. So really, like my first professional experiences were singing at weddings at 15. Uh, And I just kept going. Uh, I didn't, I actually wasn't planning on majoring in music when I graduated from high school. What were you going to do? Forensic pathology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, can't you see the connection? (laughs) (laughs) I I want I loved dissecting. Loved huh. dissecting. I loved dissecting so much that um my my grandfather who worked in animal husbandry at the University of Chicago bought me my own personal dissecting kit. Wow. What so, did you dissect? Oh, you know, we did the standard fare like earthworms, toads, <laughs> dog dogfish. I think, or which are kind of like ba- baby sharks. Okay. Oh. Um, I can't imagine you doing this right now. I loved it, and I was really good <laughs> at it. And all oh, the the big one was a cat. What? Yes, a, a cat. And um, actually, with I have a story with the the frog. I didn't finish uh, identifying all of my parts in class, so I thought it. Since I lived right across the street from the Park Forest Public Library, I thought it would be a good idea to um, take my frog home. I didn't tell my mother this, so I, <laughs> I, t- I, I didn't just, and I didn't just take the frog. I took the frog and the, um, I'm going to call it the dissecting tray. So, uh, oh you know, you had these trays that were like padded so that you could, um, when you cut the specimen, you could pin it open so that you could get a nice. Okay, sure. So you, you know, almost kind of like a pin cushion, but for dead things. <laughs> oh, sounds really bad. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and I, I, um, you know, in the library, you always have like, um, I call them secret sec- sections where mm-hmm. there are carols like off in the back of the stacks and mm-hmm. stuff. And so obviously, I knew that that would probably not be okay for me to really have it there but it was in my bag so I took it in the back I went to one of like the carols way in the back I got a um a biology book you know so that I could finish a, a reference book so that I could finish dissecting and I identifying the, bo- the body parts yeah so wow I was I was really into that you know and um I my grandfather thought, oh, I guess he thought, you know, she's into science. She should, you know, apply at the University of Chicago. Okay, that's great. You know, really strong academic program, Ivy League program. Um, Then on the other side, my grandmother was a sports fan and was really, really a huge fan of the DePaul Blue Demons back then. That was like in the 80s. -hmm. And she did. She never suggested that I attend DePaul, but I got the idea to to, uh, to attend DePaul mm-hmm. or to apply at DePaul because she liked their basketball team. Mm-hmm. Okay. Really random. The state so, was planted. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So I didn't. Um, I didn't go to UFC. Uh, I went to DePaul. Started out as a biology. They called it biology pre med, and then I transferred schools to the Chicago Musical College of Roosevelt University. Where logically, of course, I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in philosophy. <laughs> Why was that? So, oh, wow, it was just a trip. It just felt. I mean, literally, it was a trip. It was a journey. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I like 
thinking. I don't know what else you say about philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I, I suppose the, the more um, a more natural progression would have been uh, a BA in philosophy and then like law school, which with me having had an interest in forensics, hmm. forensic pathology that would have could have fit. But I loved music and singing too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I was still working. I was still working as a singer. Um, I did a lot of work with two uh, different Catholic parishes while I was an undergrad, two different parishes in Chicago. So, um, you know, singing like the different, the special masses and weddings, mm-hmm. um, did a lot of weddings. I competed as a vocalist. Mm-hmm. Um, all the while, though, I still don't really remember necessarily having like this defining moment where I said, oh, you know, this is what I'm going to be. I want to be a singer. I could sing. I had a, a high, you know, level of interest in it. It was uh, came relatively easy for me. I came from a family that was supportive mm-hmm. of the arts. Um, and I worked, mm-hmm. you know. I never wanted to be a superstar, so that's never been my goal. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of, I guess, you know, how things just got started. Yeah. Got so started where, for me. Where did you end up studying music? I, well, I, my first lessons were with um, a woman from Olympia Fields, Illinois, which is right by Park Forest. Her name is Barbara Heron. She's uh, still alive today. My mom actually went on to take voice lessons with her many years later, and, and she still keeps up, my mom. Um, and I still keep up with her from time to time. So I started with uh, Mrs. Heron. She was a voice student of a very prominent voice teacher at uh, Northwestern. She attended Northwestern. And she was one of um, Norman Goldbranson's uh, earlier students. He was a legendary, you know, voice teacher. Um, So from Mrs. Heron... I studied at the Chicago Musical College mm-hmm. of Roosevelt University, which now, or since then rather, has taken on a, a much more impressive name, performing art something, something, something. But it was... That's um, what it was at that time. That's what it was at that time. It was a very prestigious school, like with a really um, highly qualified uh, faculty. So I worked with some teachers there. Um I continued studying uh, kind of outside of the university after I graduated with a gentleman named um, Carlos Montané, who was a tenor. He was a tenor of the same classical voice category that I was. I was a lirico spinto soprano, which is um, not a dramatic soprano, so not as heavy and thick of an instrument as a dramatic soprano, but um, much more weighty, I suppose, and intense than the traditional lyric soprano. So I was kind of like that next category mm-hmm. up. I sang a lot of uh, Verdi mm-hmm. and uh, or Verdi and Mozart and some Puccini and, you know, the art song mm-hmm. repertoire. Um so I worked with Carlos Montané, who was on faculty at Indiana University, but he had a studio in Chicago. Worked with him for um, a number of years. Uh, I also worked with, um, I think her name was Norma, I want to say Norma Williams. She was the artistic director of Lincoln Opera Chicago, which was one of the first... Uh, local companies, opera companies that I worked with. Um, I was introduced to her. I've had some interesting uh, kind of connections. I was introduced to her through a former boss. Um, I I had a position as the assistant director of um, at R.H. Love Contemporary, which was an American contemporary art gallery located... Um, on the Gold Coast in Chicago. And Mr. and Mrs. Love, of course, were huge patrons of the arts. And she was, um, Miss Norma was 
a friend of theirs. And so for a while, the loves were my sponsors, which is something uh, you don't hear a lot of anymore. I'm, I'm sure that to some extent it, it still exists. But, you know, years, years, years ago, um, and I mean like hundreds of years ago. Centuries, yeah. Yeah, that was a very um, common way for artists to have opportunities to work in their craft mm-hmm. um, and to, you know, have some sponsorship. Well, it was, right. you know, to actually have a sponsor. How did that come about? Did they offer that to you or were you seeking it? Well, um, the the gallery that I worked in, the location that I worked in when the Loves, before the Loves hired me as an assistant director was housed in... Um, the historic Nickerson Mansion. It, it, if you ever have a chance to just kind of like do some sightseeing in Chicago, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, mansion. It's huge. It, you know, it, at that time, they had all of their um, American works, primarily more of the, of the classic, um, classical types of pieces, not much contemporary in that location. But that location had its own theater, this beautiful, ornately decorated um, theater. And so on my lunch break, I would go to the theater and practice, not realizing that Mr. Love's main office was right off the balcony of the theater. Hmm. And so unbeknownst to me, he would sneak in and sit down, sit up there and listen to me practice. Hmm. And then I, I think probably he told his wife, hey, did you know this kid sings? And... So that's kind of how one day they called me in. Mrs. Love called me into her office. Uh, Mr. Love was there, and they told me about their friend who owned this opera company and um, told me that they would like, uh, you know, to facilitate an introduction to her, and they would like for me to sing for her. You know, you have to sometimes be invited to uh, sing for a conductor or sing for an artistic director. So... I sang for her, and she liked me and expressed interest in training me. And she, um, I think in her performance heyday, probably had a voice that was in a similar of a similar type to mine, so she understood, um, you know, what was involved in kind of training a young, a young voice mm-hmm. that was probably going to grow into something a little meatier. Mm-hmm. And um, initially, that's how... Things got going. The love wow. sponsored my lessons uh, with Miss Norma, and um, the company. You know, it was a small company, as you know. You know, getting legs under um, your own thing mm-hmm. takes a while, a lot of work. So they didn't do a lot of productions, but I was in two. I was an understudy for uh, the role of Michaela with uh, in uh, Carmen and what else did I do I want to say um oh this uh, they do it every every um New Year's Eve it's a popular a popular uh, opera I can't think of the name of it now but it's mm-hmm. kind of a comma you know a comedy comical mm-hmm. one um and from there, I just, you know, continue to accept opportunities to work, um, primarily still weddings and church services, but it was all, you know, it was all paid work. Mm-hmm. And I continued to do some more major auditions. I auditioned for a couple of different apprentice programs, um, you know, so the typical things that, mm-hmm. that a young singer would do. Uh, yeah. So, and you've been doing that ever since. And, and so, is your primary work? Uh, I mean, you're a working musician. You haven't ever since, essentially. Um, is how much of a percentage of your work would you say is performance versus you do some private teaching as well? Mm-hmm. I would say that even during the moments when I feel like I'm really busy as a performer. I would still say that my work is probably Mm. 50-50. There are times maybe that it seems like there's that I'm doing more of one type of work than the other. But, you know, when you kind of sit down 
at the end of the day and tally up things both from the um, um, frequency of opportunities to what you, you know, acquire financially from those opportunities, I would say that it's pretty Mm 50-50. You know, like during COVID, of course, like everyone else, the gigs for me, the gigs dried up. But I really have still had a very good year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why do you think that is? Because I was because I, I really love teaching and so I've always been receptive to teaching and I've always had a teaching job. It wasn't something that a crisis made me pursue. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I'm a musician, I'm a performer. Oh, I don't have any gigs anymore. Let me teach. Mm-hmm. I've always taught. I've been teaching uh, someone something since probably 18 or 19. I started out teaching piano lessons at my mom's house while I was still in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, evolved to teaching voice lessons. And even today, um, although I don't play out publicly too much, I still teach piano lessons. Mm-hmm. I teach piano and voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you go from the Chicago area to now we're in Milwaukee? How did you end up here? And how long have you been here? Well, I've been here since 2012 I came here from the east coast okay that's right I did um I spent rather six years in New York City you know proper mainly uptown so Mm -hmm. uh Harlem Washington Heights uh the Bronx and then I spent six years in Jersey in Jersey City which is hardly you know a spit away from a stone's throw away from, from New York. It's literally through the tunnel and you're, you know, (laughs) in the next, in the next part. So, um, yeah, I've been here now since 2012. Um, I moved from the Midwest to New York really kind of on a, a lark. I had a friend, um, who, was a dancer and he moved to New York and um, had been friends with him for some years and I decided to go visit. You know, I'd never been to New York. I'm like, hey mom, I'm gonna go visit Brian in New York. And um, she's like, well, how long are you gonna be there? And I'm like, two weeks. (laughs) And she says, you know, Marcy, you don't go and visit anyone for two weeks. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's not anyone, it's Brian. So I'm, you know, I'm fine. So at any rate, I went for two weeks Um, and just, I fell in love with the city. He didn't live in, uh, Manhattan, you know, he lived in the Bronx. Um, but, um, my, (laughs) I, you know, it was, it was just great. It was just like a place, you know, someplace I'd, I'd never been. It was just, Mm -hmm. um, I think the diversity, the, uh, access Mm -hmm. of, of opportunities. I found the people that I met during my visit just to be really cool and nice. You know, it wasn't, I didn't get this vibe of it being this really, you know, scary place that, you know, oh, I'm in New York, clutch my purse, clutch my pearls. I didn't get that vibe. Um, I did learn, though, during my visit that sometimes <laughs> the price of an item <laughs> is to be, <laughs> is to be, you should be cautious about that. And, and the reason I'm saying this is, and this is not related to music directly, but um, there was, at the time, there was a series, a performance series, like a a soul R&B performance series called Black Lily that took place at this club in the Tribeca area. And Black Lily was like this event where... All of these hot artists, you know, from the East Coast, like between New York and Philly, you know, where they would go, musicians, producers and stuff. And at the time, I don't know if, um, what's his face, Um, Questlove from The Roots Mm -hmm. was the artistic director or whatever, but he was integrally involved Mm -hmm. in the event. And so, you know, I was looking through the paper and... I saw this event, and I'm like, oh, I want to go to this event, you know. 
and I needed some shoes or I wanted some shoes, sure. you know. So I, I found a pair of um, sandals that I liked that I thought went well with my outfit. I was, you know, I was dressing kind of, you know, very bohemian, you know, with the long skirt and, you know, the long in- earrings mm-hmm. and everything. And these were like the perfect sandals and they looked really comfortable. Bought them, took the subway down to from the Bronx down to um, Tribeca. When I, as I was walking out up from the subway, I just saw sheets and sheets and sheets of rain. Oh no! I had I hadn't given it a thought. Oh, it might rain. Maybe take an umbrella at least, Marcy. Uh oh. So, no coat. No umbrella. New sandals. Sheets of rain. I I go onto the street to walk over to the club, which was very close to the subway exit, and in be, kind of like in between that club and um, the subway, you know, there was a police precinct. By the time I got to the police precinct, apparently the glue that was holding the sandals together had started to disintegrate. I looked down at my feet in all this rain, and I had like one little strap (laughs) holding up each of my shoes. So, And, of course, my feet were really, really squishy because they were, you know, it was making that that squishy sound because the sandals were, you know, kind of like wedgies or something. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And I had this brilliant idea that if I went stopped in the police station, um, they might have, like, you know, a lost and found or something and just (laughs) had some shoes. (laughs) So I went in. You know, I told them what happened. What did they do for you? They looked at me like, you know, ma'am, I'm... um, Do you... Can you get some other shoes down here? (laughs) And this is before... I don't even think, Allie, I don't even think I had a cell phone because this was like, you know, the last, I think, cell phone that I had was this bag phone that I bought as soon as they came out, you know, however long ago that was. So I really don't remember if while I was in New York, if I had a cell phone, Mm -hmm. but um, I said, well, I'm not from here and my friend that I'm staying with is all the way in the Bronx. And they're like, well, can that person bring you some shoes? <laughs> and I said, well, they, we'll let you use the phone. And so I called my friend, and he was ticked off. He's like, are you serious? Am I, you're seriously asking me to come all the way down there and bring some shoes? And I'm like, but I don't have any shoes. You know, he was just my, he was my buddy. So he's like, oh. And so I... I couldn't just stay in the police station, so I had to go on where I was going. So I squished out with these, with my <laughs> shoes flopping badly um, with one strap each. And I squish up to the um, – right before I went to the club, uh, one of the shoes completely gave out. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so I said, oh, my gosh. And I'm thinking, oh, well, that's not going to be a problem. Um, I'll just kind of – you know, kneel a little bit so that my skirt was was low enough, I thought, that they wouldn't be able to tell that I didn't have on any shoes. <laughs> because, of course, the sign said... No, okay. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it was like kind of like, well, no shoes, no service right, type right. of... <laughs> oh, my God. And so, you know, I tried to kind of hide my shoes um, that I had that wouldn't... I couldn't put on <laughs> uh, under, you know, like kind yeah. of in my jacket. You know, so they wouldn't be, like, really yeah. obvious. But as I was walking up the stairs, the door guy could see that I didn't have on any shoes. And so he's like, ma'am, I'm sorry you can't go in without <laughs> shoes. And so I held out my <laughs> shoes. <laughs> well, I have shoes. I just don't have them on right now because it was hard to walk in them in the rain. And so he said, okay, we'll put them on now. Oh, no. And, um, you know, I stood there for a minute. I'm like, how am I going to do this? 
because one had nothing. Right. <laughs> like I couldn't even put a, an ankle strap. <laughs> it was like I was just standing on a pile of rubber with one shoe. And the other shoe um, was just a mess. It just had like one little strap <laughs> that was on its way out. And so I said, well, um, I ha- the thing is I have my shoes, uh, but they the, uh, there was too much rain. You know, and he's just like, like, where are you from? So I have them. I just can't put them on because there's nothing to keep them on. <laughs> it says, well, you can't go in. And I said, he says, they're not going to let you in. And I said, oh, but can't you just let me go in? Because, the, I'm, you know, the ticket lady is, you know, behind a ticket booth. How is she going to see that I don't have on any shoes? And I really, really, really wanted to yeah. go to this event. Right. And and he says, well, um, I can't. I can't because if something were to happen to you. And I said, there's nothing that's going to happen to me. I'll just, you know, I, you know, I'm trying to plead my case with this guy. And he says, well, I, can't, I just can't. Can't you have someone bring you some shoes? And I said, well, I have a friend who's on his way down with my shoes. Uh, but he's in the Bronx, and it's going to take him a little while. And he says, well, I can't let you in at all. Oh, man. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> he says, you have to wait out here. It was raining. And so I um, looked up, and I saw, you know, that there was enough of a roof. And I said, okay, well, can I stay here under the, you know, yeah. top of the building? He says, well, yeah. He says, I tell you what, I'll get you a chair. <laughs> so he gets me a chair. I'm thinking, Aww. okay, this isn't so bad. Until all of the people thought that I was the door person. <laughs> and so at a point when I realized that that was going to be my job until my shoes arrived, I asked the door guy, I'm like, how much does it cost to get in? He's <laughs> like, why are you asking me all these questions? I said, because I'm sitting here under the roof when you could have just let me in. But that's okay. I appreciate the chair. But everybody thinks that I'm the door girl now. So, and so he said, well, you know, it costs whatever to get in. And and I said, okay. And he said, but they have to have a stamp to get in. And I said, oh, I don't work here. I don't have a stamp. And he goes and he gets me a stamp. All of a sudden you're an employee. <laughs> so, right. My shoes arrived long after the event started. They actually still charged me to get in. Oh, my God. Even after you worked for them. Even after I worked for them. <laughs> yes, I was a reliable employee, dependable. I bet you were. <laughs> it was still raining, um, and I still had my squishy shoes. It wouldn't work. And that night, Questlove was there on the drums. I don't remember who else was in the band, but Jill Scott was the featured performer, and this is be- right before she dropped her first um, big, you know, her first big hit. So she was doing, like, um, white label, you know, yeah. promo events. And she was there on stage with no shoes. <laughs> Are you serious? Mm, I kid you not. <laughs> and so when I saw the door guy on my way out, I was like, that lady, that girl I was up there singing? He says, yeah, Jill. I said, yeah, she didn't have on any shoes. <laughs> what did he say to that? I just laughed. <laughs> so yeah, so that was my introduction to New York. <laughs> Shortly after that, um, I was just like, "Hey, mom, you know, yeah, I'm gonna move to New York." And she's like, "Okay, why? What are you gonna be doing out there? Do you have a job?" Well, yeah, no, I don't have a job yet. You'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah, so I ended up, uh, that was kind of my foray into teaching in the classroom, in the formal okay. sense. Although um, my by, by my second year, I was actually a music teacher mm-hmm. in the city of New York. Nice. So stayed out there for a while. And then um, t- was just ready to leave. I didn't really have a place that I wanted to go. I just knew that I was not at that time really interested in moving home home. 
Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm an only child. My All of my family is in the Midwest and mm-hmm. still in the Chicago area for the most part, my parents and stuff. So um, I knew some people who lived here in Milwaukee, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's a lot closer than Jersey mm-hmm. for sure. So that's how pretty much that's how I ended up here. Um, I left the East Coast. I, you know put my my ducks in what do they call it ducks in a row. Yeah. yeah that I was going to say put my ducks in an order I don't <laughs> it's not quite right uh, but I you know lined up my ducks or you know put them in order or in a row and um got a job got two jobs one of which was um with the Wisconsin Conservatory sure. of Music mm-hmm. I'd worked with prior to moving here I'd worked with a musician who was on faculty there. He's like, hey, you know, this might be a cool place for you to check mm-hmm. out. So that was kind of, you know, my introduction to um, the Milwaukee scene, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing classical, you've been doing jazz, you've been doing all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. in this area ever since. Yeah, and even prior. I mean, yeah. I did some dance music and stuff sure. when I lived out east. Um, you know, R&B, mm-hmm. world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you name Just it. Yeah. All all kinds of great yeah, music. Yeah. Which if you're a professional musician, I mean you you learn all you learn it sure. all. Sure. Because sure. that's that's what you do to to make it, which is good. You're versatile. That's really really good. So I want to ask you a couple of question questions about like the business of music and mm-hmm. um so I mean you uh you've been around the business for a long time and uh I mean, and not that you're old or anything, but, you, but not at all. No, but you've been you've been doing this for a while. You've been you've been in a lot of different areas. I mean, um, how did you? I mean, how did you learn it? How did you learn? And like, you're one of the more savvy people that I know and respect in the in the oh, business thank world. Thank you. Yeah, and it, like that's why you know I wanted to have you on here, and and I just I love learning from you. And one of the one of the things that I personally appreciate that I've learned from you is like that you love to dress the part of the musician. You 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 like to make sure that musicians are are looking and, and dressing for their audience. And um, I, I love that. And I like to pass that along to people now ever since I've gotten to know you. Because I'm like, yeah, I mean, you need to put effort into your show, into your appearance. But there's other, there's so many other things. Like, how did you learn your business? Oh, wow. I think like most artists, um, you know, it's a combination, I think, of trial and error. Um watching others, you know, so taking note of what things kind of seem to work for most people. And then um, just self-initiative, reading up on things. Uh, I had a composer friend many years ago in grad school who uh, was very much into the business of music because one of the things that he was hoping to do, or I think really the primary thing that he was hoping to do uh, with his education as a composer was to get into things like film scoring, scoring mm-hmm. for, um, you know, for commercials, mm-hmm. things of that nature. So he was really savvy. He was really book smart about mm-hmm. things. And one of the books that he recommended back then, I believe it was um, This Business of Music, by sure. Donald Passman, mm-hmm. yeah, that one, which has had like mm-hmm. I think a million different editions, uh, editions yeah, yeah. at this mm-hmm. point, yeah. So you know, started kind of digging my nose into that. Um, I found many other helpful resources. Um, Nolo, N O L O, is always a good resource for practical uh, business mm-hmm. advice. What is that for those who might not know, uh, Nolo is a series of I guess they're like a series of self do it yourself business kinds of things. So, you know, uh, everything from how to put together a business plan to, you know, they had a a music book that came with a book on the music industry or the business of music that came with a CD-ROM. And on that CD-ROM, they had all of their documents, uh, basic band agreements, performance agreements, writers, you know, all things that you can look at and could view and adapt to your needs. Um, I think sometimes as artists, 
we get kind of really caught up in, oh, well, you don't know anything about the music business or the fine arts business, you know, so you can't really advise me on that. Um, One thing that I learned or was exposed to kind of early on is the fact that good business or healthy business is good business or healthy business regardless of the specific industry that you're in. Now, of course, there are many industry specifics. Um, So since we're speaking of the music industry, there are many things that are specific to the music industry uh, that one can learn about, you know, and should learn about if you're involved in the music business. But ultimately, um, common sense and just, I think, general good business principles will keep you, should keep you relatively safe, mm-hmm. should pretty much keep you out of harm's way. Uh, and, and to the point of, you know, common sense or just, you know, general business knowledge, um, each of my parents had things, you know, had advice for me or comments for me or, or have had rather, you know, throughout my mm-hmm. career. Uh, comments or suggestions or perspectives that um, may not have been industry specific, but were Marcy specific, Mm -hmm. meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, things that would certainly not put me in harm's way. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, I think I've acquired a much different type of appreciation, a much different level of appreciation um, for that, mm-hmm. you know. Any examples? Um, okay, well, my mom is really good with, I think, assessing or assessing what what is going to be appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, what is going to be appropriate and appealing to certain groups of people or in certain settings. Um, So, you know, things like just something, you know, kind of superficial, like always try to, you know, look your best. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, you don't, when you're before the, in front of the public, you should, you know, mind your P's and Q's. Mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, being phony or anything like that. It's just that you want to, you know, try to put forth your best, um, your best efforts, I think, mm-hmm. when you're in front of people. I think that most people, when they come to see you, are hoping for a positive experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they that most people want, are coming, you know, go to a shows, attend shows, because they want to feel good. They want you to sing your best. Um, you know, they want to have some kind of meaningful experience. And you know, just like I, I, I'm thinking of right now, like at this very moment, I don't know if you remember, you may not be old enough, but I'm young enough to, <laughs> to remember when generic items first hit the shelves in grocery stores. Mm-hmm. This is many years ago. And um, they were, the packaging was just awful. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have like, you'd go down this aisle and everything in the aisle, all the labels in the aisle were yellow, Mm -hmm. just yellow. And all of the lettering was black. Baked beans, hot Mm -hmm. dogs, Mm -hmm. popcorn, pineapples, just black, (laughs) just yellow, (laughs) plain yellow labels, you know, with black print. And sure, they were much more cost efficient. But then you go down uh, the soup aisle and you see the cute little Campbell's soup label, mm-hmm. right? They put some time and thought into that. You know, at that point, Campbell's labels had been Campbell's labels in some fashion or another for years. You know, you go down the canned fruits aisle and you see the really pretty pictures of fruit on the Del, Mo- I think the Del-, Del Monte mm-hmm. um, canned fruit, you know, and those items packaged that way made you want to purchase them. Mm-hmm. 
rather than the ugly yellow can with the black writing that says pineapples. And you really don't know if you're getting pineapples or not. Right. When you get, I mean, I guess technically you really don't know if Del Monte pineapples were going to be pineapples <laughs> before you open the can just because they had a pretty picture. But the pretty yes. picture, you know, drew your attention. And then kind of like to rein, reinforce that, um, as well, I was still in college and I remember my one year my aunt got me get or gave me a business card case a really pretty one that I still have it was gold and it you know was decorated very feminine uh, decorated with um, pink roses in fact it was from this jewelry collection which I'm not sure if it's still around now but at the time 1928 jewelry was like this vintage style jewelry so she gave me a 1928 um, business card case and then I think I think it was also either she or my father who gave me a a nice like attache case and then my mom you know always made sure that I had the you know appropriate dresses and outfits and things mm-hmm. um you know for my performances mm-hmm. so and also you know coming up in classical music it was imp- a you know, it was important how, you know, even as, as an instrumentalist, you know, concert black, right? you know, um, for solo singers, you know, if you were concertizing or, you know, you were expected to look a, a certain kind of a way. Mm-hmm. So um, in addition to the fact that that's just kind of how I was raised anyway, that's how my mom raised me, um, that along with the professional you know, bells and whistles. Those were things that um, became, you know, that I was acutely aware of at an early age. Mm-hmm. Um, speed ahead to now, well, in between then and now, let's throw New York in there and let's specifically throw like the New York jazz scene. And the cats that I was around in New York, they always looked good, mm-hmm. you know, when they were performing. There was just, I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have on a snazzy suit. My shoes are going to be clean and shined up. You know, even if I only have two snazzy suits, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a snazzy suit that I wear to my gig. If I'm wearing jeans, it's going to be snazzy, you know. And so um, I could see that, you know, even with those guys, even the really, really young ones, mm-hmm. that that was important that the and that um the importance of how you appear of your appearance means a lot Mm -hmm. you know a jazz at lincoln center doesn't show up for a gig in random outfits looking random Mm -hmm. you are never when marsalis would never uh, allow that i hate to put it in that right you know particular kind of way but those guys are very well outfitted Mm -hmm. you know and so, um, speeding ahead to now, I'll be honest, I'm really pretty mortified at by um, a lot of the, quote, show attire that I, I've seen, you know, over in recent years. Not just specifically here in uh, Milwaukee, but just kind of in general. And I'm, I'm a, a bit disappointed at the lack of interest mm-hmm. in dressing you know for work it seems like there's so much that so many people are mostly interested in well forget it I mean you know it's all about the art it's all about the music you know I'm not being paid enough to Mm -hmm. to wear a suit or I'm not being paid enough to you know go buy some as I call them snazzy shoes (laughs) (laughs) snazzy shoes and don't get me wrong I totally get that depending on your genre, perhaps, maybe even depending on, you know, who you who your crowd is. If you're someone uh, who's been around for a while and you have a very you have a very well developed, a very well defined crowd, you know, and I get that, um, and I'm perfectly fine within certain areas or certain genres that all of the extra, you know, as people would say, um, 
is not required. Mm -hmm. And I am not offended when I'm, you know, in those settings because that's what I expect. But then, you know, if you're doing an an upscale cocktail party and they hired you not as a a rock band but as a jazz ensemble and... You know, you have people coming into the set looking like ragamuffins, and you're standing up there. You know, you've spent three hours gluing your hair down or gluing it in <laughs> if you're adding extra. You're gluing the hair down if it's on your head or, you know, gluing it in if yeah. it's extra hair, um, you know, and putting on a face yeah, and, and all of those things. And you show up and, you know, you're the face of the, the group for that night. And, you know, you look to your left and your right and your partners kind of look like ragamuffins Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in spite of asking them to not look like ragamuffins on that night. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's, you know, it's kind of as a singer, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. What do you do with that then? There's nothing that you can do. You you have to just do your job. Mm -hmm. And your job is to make sure that you keep the, not not only that you keep the audience entertained and engaged, but it's also your responsibility to make sure that that um, energy and that vibe uh, on stage is still able to prevail in spite of mm-hmm. um, your, perhaps, your, your displeasure right. with, with the appearance. Because, yes... Um, the most important thing is that people have an enriching experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess I just, I'm old school. I just feel that mm-hmm. having also an appearance or trying to have an appearance that supports all of the fabulous energy and exchanges that are happening on the stage, I think that's a small thing that all of us could do, you know, to make things better. I mean, I've seen rock groups or rockers. Okay, I'll name one of my buddies, um, Peter Mac. Mm-hmm. Peter Mac is just cool. Mm-hmm. He always looks cool. He's a rocker. Yeah. You know, he's he wears jeans, mm-hmm. whatever kind of jeans, you know, are trending, whatever kind of jeans that, you know, he likes. He wears boots. He wears um, snazzy jewelry. <laughs> I like the word yeah. snazzy. Yeah. Um, you know, leather jackets. He always has on, you know, some funky kind of accessory or something like that. He looks the part, you know, he's Peter Mac, singer, songwriter, you know, plays rock, blues, mm-hmm. jazz, and and that's what he looks like. Mm-hmm. And when you see him out, whether you see him doing, you know, like his solo sets mm-hmm. um, at St. Kate or wherever, um, or whether you see him, you know, as, uh, as part of a, another group. I mean, he plays with many different groups. I think he plays like with Brian Dale, drummer. Um, you know, he he looks like what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I can think of many, many other musicians just in thinking of some here in town that whatever it is that they're doing, they look like that. Yeah. And let's say if you were to ask someone like Peter to do an upscale jazz hit, he's still going to sh- arrive looking fantastic and like Peter, but there's going to be that one extra little thing mm-hmm. that he's going to do um, to make sure that he fits into that you know, particular setting. And I don't, if, you know, he happens to listen to this, he just, uh, I actually was thinking of wondering how he was doing the other day. So that's how he popped (laughs) um, into my mind right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for offering your words on that. I know that you feel strongly about that. And yeah, I definitely wanted to hear your opinion on that. Um, I know we have to wrap things up pretty quickly here, actually. But and there's a couple other things I wanted to ask about. Maybe we can get that in, mm-hmm. in the show notes or something. Okay. Um, but uh, can you at least um, tell us a little bit about the music that you uh, wanted to include with this? Enamored. Okay. So I do write. I can write. I've I've been told that I write pretty well. Um, often I'm a little gun shy about writing. However, you know, I decided um, a few months ago I needed to, you know, I was ready to kind of get moving on things. Um, and there's a gentleman here in um, Milwaukee named Chris Crane, you know, really well-known uh, singer, songwriter, great, great uh, songwriter, producer. And he actually produced this song, Enamored, for me. I recorded my, like, melody 
just really roughly in my phone. And as I played back the melody, the words to Enamored just seemed to kind of fit. And um, in a nutshell, it's just a song about a person. It could be a guy or a girl who has a crush on someone else. And so they're just kind of reflecting on uh, the different things that they like about this person. And in terms of like the vibe, I was hoping to create a song that was contemporary. So I, I didn't want to create something new that sounded old, if that makes any sense. But I wanted to kind of create like a contemporary standard, you know, something that um, on the production side would be able to main, uh, would it be able to present certain elements that our ears now aesthetically are accustomed to hearing with contemporary jazz or smooth jazz, if you will, um, but also musically maintain um, the the kind of like the foundational elements of a good jazz standard. And um, Chris really, I think, did a great job kind of bringing all that together with the instrumentation and uh, the overall, uh, he's very, works very meticulously um, and the overall production quality. And then mm-hmm. my friend uh, Wycliffe Gordon, who actually produced my first CD, um, I called him up and I'm like, hey, knock, knock. <laughs> Can yeah. you? Will you? Sure, no problem. And so then he, you know, blessed the track with um, a little bit of tromboning. Nice. And that's how that came about. Love it. Enamored. Love yeah. it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And how can people find you? I can be found on the internet, of course, um, <laughs> at marciadeneal.net. That's M-A-R-C-Y-A-D-A-N-E-I-L-L-E.net. I'm also on Instagram, um, MD McReynolds Voice Coach, Facebook, and Enamored, uh, once I think CD Baby kind of catches up on their COVID delays, mm-hmm. Um, hopefully Enamored will be available on all digital platforms this month. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, just a quick shout out to our patrons. We always like to give a nod to our featured featured patron for each show. Today's featured patron is Tony Meister. Thank you, Tony, for all you do to help keep Wisconsin Music Ventures going. And uh, we'll see you all later. It's a big thrill when I see you walk through the door. My heart is pounding louder than before. I see you smiling. You got me upside down and spinning around. Don't you know I? Miss a few notes, but it don't mean a thing. This is way more than a little spring flame. You got me upside down and spinning
don't you know I I'm in so much for listening. We hope you'll leave ratings and reviews for us wherever you're listening from. Visit themusiciansventure.com for more information on upcoming guests, show notes, and ways to send us your topic suggestions. The Musicians Venture podcast is hosted by Allison M., recorded at Podcast Town in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music written and performed by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again. <laughs>